0: time for the outspoken cyclist your weekly conversation about bicycles cyclists trails travel advocacy the bike industry and much much more you can subscribe to our weekly podcast at outspokencyclist.com or through your favorite podcasting app to listen anytime now here's your host diane jenks
1: Hello and welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. Thanks for tuning in today. My guests for this show couldn't be more different in terms of their focus. One is a professional civil engineer, ardent urban planner and transportation specialist. The other is an accomplished master's bike racer winning several medals at this year's Pan Am Games. But variety being the spice of life, as they say, hopefully you'll get something from each of them, whether it be inspiration to do more about your local bicycle walking infrastructure or decide to enter an event you'd been thinking about but have yet to sign on the dotted line. Veronica Davis is a professional civil engineer and transportation specialist. She is currently the Director of Transportation and Drainage Operations, a service line within Houston Public Works. Transportation and Drainage Operations is responsible for maintaining and improving the infrastructure that spans Houston's 671 square miles. As you'll learn, Veronica comes to the transportation planning sector from a family immersed in the business where both her mother and father were involved. Her new book, Inclusive Transportation, A Manifesto for Repairing Divided Communities, was recently published by Island Press, and it's what drew me to her for our conversation. Then we're going to scoot from Houston over to Florida to speak with Eric McBride. Eric is the CEO of Palm Beach Health Network Physician Group during the day and an avid elite road and track racer when he dons his kit and cleats. Eric has been racing bikes since college and now, as a Masters rider in the 45- to 49-year age group, captured two golds and a silver at the Masters Pan Am Games in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic this past spring. Eric will be with me in the second half of the show. Veronica Davis is a transportation expert. And in her new book, Inclusive Transportation, A Manifesto for Repairing Divided Communities, she offers some astute observations on the inequalities and destructive practices present in the transportation planning sector. In the book, Veronica offers a unique perspective about how our cities became divided and why we need to move on from what we've always known and redefine urban transportation. We dive into a variety of topics, including how immigration, always a hot topic for politicians, might actually solve some of the issues we see in the job market, and how, when we finally have funding for much-needed infrastructure projects, there may not be enough workers to complete them. Here is my conversation with Veronica. Hello, Veronica. Welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm fabulous. How are you? You're fabulous and jet-lagged. Fabulous
2: and jet-lagged.
1: I get it. So uh, I I know we have a lot to talk about and time is always of the essence for busy people like you and me. So let's get to it. Tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up. What had the influence for you to go into this line of work, this inclusive transportation, which is the name of your book? uh, And we'll get into that too. And why transportation and urban planning? It's it's such a specialty field that I have a, a real affinity for. But I don't talk to a lot of women, so I'm really happy to talk to you.
2: Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me uh here today. Um, so my I know I do share in the book that I grew up in a little bitty town called Maplewood, New Jersey. It is a bedroom suburb of New York City. My parents took New York, New Jersey Transit into New York City um, to then my mother worked in Brooklyn, my dad worked in Midtown. And that was, you know, just my life growing up. But even before then I was actually born in Virginia and I was almost born in the USDOT building. My dad worked for UMTA at the time, I was born into this. So you ask, how do I get it? I was born into it. Um, my dad worked for UMTA, uh, which is the Federal Transit Administration's predecessor. And my mom went into labor waiting for him uh, to come out the building and they made it across the Potomac. So I was born in Virginia and the first five years of my life I I spent in Virginia. And then we moved to New Jersey. I think I was fortunate in that both of my parents were in the transportation field. My mother worked for New York City Transit Authority in human resources and, and development of interns and the future of the industry. And then my dad worked, uh, my dad's a civil engineer and an urban planner, and we moved to New Jersey so that he could work for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Um, Then he worked for uh, Sealand prior to it being acquired by CSX um, and working on both the shipping and the rail side, and then um, ending his career at the American Society of Civil Engineers as the executive director. Um, So it's very much been a part of my life. And and I'll give a lot of credit to both of my parents. Um, Both my sister and I are in the sciences. And I know you hear a lot about young young girls that get discouraged away from math and science. But my parents were very much pushed us both. And so my sister is now a medical doctor. Um, And so with that, you know, I think my parents recognized early I was very good at math and very good at science. I didn't really know what I wanted to be. Um, and my dad was like, you should do engineering. And I was like, yeah, 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 dad. Um, so I went to Maryland. Uh, I was engineering general and I walked out of my first uh, chemistry class as a freshman. And I was like, what can I declare that I don't ever have to take another chemistry class? And that's how I settled on civil. And, uh, and here I am. And, and even with transportation, I, I actually was more interested in structures. And I had a professor who I do share in the book, uh, Dr. Sermon's. Uh, he's no longer teaching. I don't think anymore. Um, but it, he was a professor and he was in and it was the introduction of transportation planning. And I thought it was just very fascinating. and that's when I um, did you know transportation as my depth. Um, and then that's what actually also encouraged me to apply for um, getting a master's in planning. Um so I do owe a lot to him as a professor and you know just being able to see how decisions are getting made and those impacts. And that's how. I
1: fell on that track. Oh, it's so interesting. <laughs> Dare you say you walked out of that chemistry class and said, I never want to take it. I feel the exact same way. You know, my, my majors were art and journalism, but it's like, I ha- and I went to Ohio State years and years ago. And of course, it was required because I didn't take chemistry in high school. I took physics. And I loved physics. I hated chemistry, <laughs>
2: that was me I loved physics i remember in um in high school as a junior, I took senior physics as well as taking chemistry so I took two sciences I don't really know why but more so I wanted to take physics again
1: uh, exactly i i would I, I can remember the it's funny i can actually i don't remember a lot of my teachers' names back from high school because i i did skip a year but I remember my physics teacher was called doc tyson. <laughs> <laughs> Well,, uh, let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with Veronica Davis, um uh, clearly, she is a civil engineer. She has a master's in planning. She's written a book called Inclusive Transportation: A Manifesto for Repairing Divided Communities. And I really want to talk about divided communities because I'm well aware of what happened. I don't know how it happened, when it happened, or why it happened. But I do know that it did that all of a sudden planners started putting freeways down the middle of communities. And literally dividing along racial, along economic lines. What happened when? Why? What the heck?
2: You know, you see as early in the, the 30s and 40s, um, that's when you start off with the American Dream. Some of the first American Dream ads um, came out right in the late 30s. And there was this whole vision of an American dream and and the suburbanization and and everything, particularly as cars became more affordable in general, more readily available. And then um, you saw it speed up in the 50s and 60s, particularly around urban renewal. And if you look across the United States, almost every city, almost every community, you can point to a neighborhood that was divided. Largely, um, how did they end up where they ended up? You go the path of least resistance and so to do that you go to the people who have less power um, less influence and so largely you get either a low-income you know black brown and also to, you know i know that we've changed the definition of white over generations you know a lot of italian irish jewish communities they were not considered white during those times and that was the path of least resistance because those people had the least amount of power when you layer on top of that the real estate and the fact that you have redlining and it's documented and there there's just, it is a documented phenomenon. I know that we at one point we had alternative facts in this country. That is a documented phenomenon of protective covenants and, and even in 2023 um, there's still properties that have protective covenants on them. But again, it was black, Jewish, uh, Irish, Italian. You know, it was really these big ethnic groups and so that determined who could live where and so once you control who can live where it makes all these other decisions a lot easier, because imagine if you have a, a, you know, integrated community. Well, then now it's harder because you're now mixing people without power with people with power. And that's largely how a lot of those decisions got made. And then when you look at the industry at the time it was majority white men, there may have been one man of color like slipped in there. But in the 1960s, it was very much a white male dominated uh, industry. And so then I don't know these neighborhoods, I don't really care. Um, So you do have a layer of, you know, white supremacy uh, in all of this, or even a sense of uh, a white privilege of I don't even have to take the time to consider these other communities. And, you know, I do share in the book, my family story um, in East Baton Rouge. My mother was in high school when her family home was taken uh, to build I-10, which now goes, you know, from Florida to California. Um, So her family home was taken and that community was mostly Black and Italian. um, And the impact, so she remembers and she's here today. And so that's that's where that happened. It's, you know, it's essentially, you know, um, intentional. And I think it's one of those we justify that a few suffered for the greater good of creating these massive interstate highways. But what's really interesting, and I know that a couple of the different blogs uh, within the industry, Streets Blog um, and a coalition uh, for uh, Smart Smart Growth America and a few others, have actually shown the documentation of what land uses, what what cities looked like before the highways came through, and the fact that the highways really decimated a lot of cities um, and you think about now in most cities, the amount of developable land that, the, you know, the amount of income that could be generated if but that highway infrastructure wasn't there.
1: I want to talk about DEI or D-I-E, diversity, equity and inclusion. You know, they were buzzwords and a lot of times we're talking about lip service mm-hmm. uh, and especially during the pandemic. And you talk about destructive practices in transportation that need to be examined and, and altered. So what are they? And are we really seeing equity inclusion and diversity in transportation and in planning? Um, I'm going to take the the, last question first. Uh, We're not, uh, it's getting better.
2: Slowly, but surely it is getting better, particularly in planning. You see more women. When I was in uh, planning school, out of a class of about 100 people, and I was probably 75% women, um, you know, in a master's program. So it was very, very uh, much dominated by women. But even within, I was one of two black women and one of barely two handfuls of people of color. So that that part is it it was still kind of lagging. Um, On the engineering side, I can even say for me graduating from my master's program, uh, I was one of five women and one of two uh, black people. And so, um, you know, that's just another set of struggles. So the industry is getting better, but we are nowhere near where it needs to be. And I think that there's different pieces of what diversity, equity, and inclusion looks like. So I think one, there is, you you see now in the industry, a lot of young people are, you know, it's more diverse. Um, But when you look at who is still running the company, or running the agency, it's not there. Um, you, you haven't seen, and in, it in a, in a varies city by city, um, but you don't quite get that diversity in the leadership levels. And so, therefore, you might have done a great job of recruiting uh, diverse candidates, but if every day they're faced by microaggressions, um, and those, and microaggressions, um, you know, for your listeners that don't know, you know, it's those little side comments. That are very harmless, but they come and they come and they come. Um, but you know those type of microaggressions, or you create an environment that isn't really conducive for people to be in it and be safe. You know, you think about where offices. You know, are there gender-neutral bathrooms? Are there places where you know women are able to pump? You know, should they have a baby? It's all of that type of stuff that. If you don't have a true company culture and practice to be supportive, then you're really just tokenizing people and you're probably doing more damage in that case. And there's you know, tons of studies that have been done by like American Society of Civil Engineers and a few others that talk about particularly women leaving the workforce. When you look at COVID, um, I read a statistic that just within kind of the industry, like 2.4 million women left and they're not coming. They haven't been back yet. And so it's all of those things. And and so equity inclusion isn't just about the, the hiring. It's all the other things. It's do the people actually have a voice? Do they actually have a say? Um, and I do think it's important. I know that there's attacks across the nation around um, this topic, uh, the fact that there's been direct attacks on affirmative action. And I think that sometimes we have this idea of a meritocracy and Frankly, I meet, I meet a lot of smart people who are phenomenal engineers, but they don't do well in this industry because you know when you come to transportation, if you don't understand people, if you don't understand communities, you just really can't be a great engineer in this industry. Um, I think there's a lot of people that are significantly smarter than me, but it's how are you taking that, what you know how to do as an engineer, but applying it to this community and their needs and their impacts. And so I don't know. I, I think it's, um, I think more is, more needs to be done. Um, but I am encouraged, particularly by the younger generation um, getting into it. And I think with things like podcasts and blogs, like younger people are finding out about our industry. Um, we need to probably do a little bit more PR, but you know, it's, it's hard on career
1: day to do. I'm an engineer. Like, what does that even look like? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, and then you say transportation. And, and what I'm seeing, and I'm sure you're seeing this too, is younger people are not so eager to dump their money into a car. And so Mm -hmm. then they end up in a situation where there is no good public transportation, no good bike infrastructure, Mm -hmm. bad infrastructure for walking. And they don't maybe want to live in suburbs anymore.
2: Very much that trend has happened. And, you know, um, I, I do cite in my book that young people aren't getting driver's license. Like I remember when I was 17, uh, I got my driver's license uh, two days after my birthday, and that was two that 48 hours was painful. I was ready to go. Um, my seventh that on April 27th, uh, I got my driver's license, and that was my ticket to freedom. And I distinctly remember that. But with the younger people, you know, they are not getting driver's license people now that are in their early, early 20s, they look, like, I don't know how to drive. I don't want to drive. Right. Um, and even living in places that are hostile uh, to driving, as you mentioned. Um, and then I think if you think about the workforce, that's the tension right now that is happening in the workforce where some companies are like, you got to get back to work. And you have people that are like, nope, I want to work from home. I, I'm getting, I am just as productive working from home. I don't want to go in the office. And there's this like push and pull of trying to get particularly younger employees to go back to the office they're like i don't want to Uh, do you want the work done or do you want to see me because i'm getting my work done and i think that um, you know particularly with with covid it it just accelerated that telework and people got a taste and they're like nope i'm not going back and i think that's the struggle right now of even just trying to hire in the industry if you don't offer remote or at least a hybrid option it's it's very challenging to get people to come in and, and it's a shift and the problem is, it's almost kind of like everything with this nation, the people who are often in decision-making positions are making it based on their values. And it's like, you're making a decision today that you're not gonna even be here respectfully You know, when it comes time for the consequences. We're seeing this in our national politics, you know, we're seeing this at state local levels, And so we're making these decisions of, no, 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 we're going to widen the roads because people are going to want to drive. And the younger people are like telling you, I don't want to drive. You're I don't want to drive. So why are we why are you widening this road? I don't want to drive. And I just don't think we have really caught up to the trends of what it's showing us. And I think that there's this mythical kind of belief that, no, 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 we're going to keep projecting and things are going to keep moving the way they have been. But it's like, it's not, it's not happening. And I think the even younger generation, they're going to be on something else. Like my, my I have a four year old and I think that generation is going to be completely different, you know, cause they are being raised by, you know, millennials, maybe some young gen Xers and being raised to be more worldly and and those things. And I, I just don't see them demanding, you know, to drive.
1: Right. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about your book. We're speaking with Veronica Davis. She is a civil engineer. She has a master's in planning. The book is titled Inclusive Transportation, a Manifesto for Repairing Divided Communities in Which Many of Us Live. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. We're speaking with Veronica Davis, and we're going to talk about her new book, Inclusive Transportation, A Manifesto for Repairing Divided Communities. Uh, we sort of started off by talking about what a divided community is and how it happened. I apparently grew up in one and didn't even realize it. Uh, I mean, the truth is, I knew it was somewhat segregated, and it's sort of self. we sort of self-segregate ourselves. You know, uh, I'm in an area of Cleveland, which is uh, heavily populated by an Orthodox Jewish community. And the building up of that community is enormous right now. Um, And then we can cross Mayfield Road, which is right down the street, and go a little bit north, and now we're talking about an enormous African-American community, East Cleveland. And so I'm not sure why we do this to ourselves, but it seems that we do. So I'm wondering what you see, and and I want to talk about not fixing the broken system, because you have a different take on it, and I really like that what you decided here would be a better way to do it. But how do we fix that? which might in turn help to fix the transportation and, and, and moving people around problem?
2: Well, I think that you have to look at how the segregated communities came to be. When you look at uh, communities that self-segregate, if you will, part of it's for protection. When you think about the Jewish community, as you mentioned, think about why they came to the United States, right? You know, it's you had the pogroms, you had the Holocaust. And so people were just trying to escape to survive and living in very tight communities, because this, as long as I'm in this tight community, I am safe. If I expand, I may not be safe. So the Jewish community exists because of survival. Um, and this is how we know how to survive. Uh, when you think about the black community, very similar, it is we are having this community because I, I just wanna be left alone. I don't wanna have to uh, worry about my safety. On top of the fact that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of this was created by real estate of pushing people to certain areas. So it's, you know, kind of a twofold of they were pushed to the areas. But then there's also a comfort in feeling safe because I have now escaped this place or this thing. And you think about immigrant communities, you have enclaves of people from a specific particular country. And it's because one person comes and then you just slowly build this community because there is safety in numbers, um, people understanding the culture. So I think we can't discount that, um, particularly for, you know, kind of non-white, you know, Americans, you you can't discount just the overall safety aspect of it. Um, And so then what do you do? Um, In that case, it is looking at ways that transportation can be a glue to connect. You know, I think when we look at a lot of our cities, and, and we've designed so that everyone can get downtown, so for, for the traditional nine-to-five work period. So in the morning, there's really high service to get downtown, and in the evening, there's very high service to leave downtown. But think about within communities, intra-community, you can't get around. I remember when I lived in Washington, D.C., and I could get downtown. I could get downtown in 15 to 20 minutes by bus. Um, I had a high uh, high capacity bus um, that came and it was a nice express route, didn't stop at every bus stop. It was beautiful. My church was two miles as the coal fries within my same community. I would have to take two buses or a bus in a metro and then walk just to get there. And no one ever thought about that because it's a, well, you don't really need to go there. We just need to get you downtown. And I think you know some transit agencies have taken the hard look at we still have all this service to downtown. People aren't wanting to go downtown. They're not leaving their homes, but they're still using transit. But the trips are at different times. There's been very fascinating data coming out of ridership and how that peak has moved, you know, to middle of the day and how the rides are changing. And it is an opportunity to think about, well, how do we how do we connect communities through transit? Because I don't want to go downtown, but maybe I want to go to you know, somewhere else, maybe I want to go get some hamatasha, right? Like, and so how can I take a bus to get me there, you know, and be connected in those type of ways?
1: You say, let's not fix the broken system, because it's working exactly as planned. And that, you know, you have to really think on that for a minute. Uh, if, if it's been planned, then you probably don't want to fix it. You want something different.
2: Correct. I think that, you know, it's really a contemplation of, it's doing what it's designed to do. This is this is exactly where we started off the conversation at the beginning. This is what the system was designed to do. It was designed to divide. It was designed to get people from the suburbs out of the inner city, scary inner city as fast as humanly possible. And that's how it was designed. You know, in a sense, I think that Kind of the radical view. It's ha- even how we do our transportation planning. So it gets back to the point we talked about with younger people that don't want to drive, but we don't look at that. We project the future based on the past. But in the past, we didn't have driverless vehicles. In the past, we didn't have that I can order groceries from my phone, so I don't have to make a trip to the, I don't have to make a trip to the grocery store. But maybe one person can go to the grocery store for five other people we don't do things how we did it before and i think that's where our how we do transportation planning hasn't changed and so we look from where we are today and we project to where we are today and we say well 40 year olds today want to drive and so therefore 40 year olds 20 years from now we're going to want to drive and then 40 year olds you know 40 years from now they're going to want to drive and it's never a look of let's stop what do we want to be and that's one of the things i talk about. It would be radical because you'd have to get the feds to kind of shift to accept some of this. But why not say this is what we want our city to look like and, you know, be provocative and say, you know, what if what if as a city, what if a city said you're in Cleveland, right? I'm in a ring suburb. Yeah. Ring suburb. But what if the what if your whole region said, you know what, our goal is to get rid of 50 percent of the pavement and and we're going to get rid of all surface lots. Think about a radical shift of that, because now you have to say, all right, if I project from here, I can't get there. But if this is what it is and I still got to move all of these people, well, I need to have a better transit transit system so I can move a lot of people. I need to have a more dense transit system to move a lot of people. Do I need drivers? Maybe 40 years from now, they'll be autonomous so I can have a bunch of autonomous shuttles looping around. I can rip up pavement and what am I going to do? I can, we can add in more green space, more trees to help undo some of the impacts of climate and uh, in the in, the, in the, the change of our climate. So it's like having that radical level of thinking, but we're just still stuck in projecting from what we have today of this is what we have today. And it's congested. We're going to add more people. So therefore we need to add more capacity and it's just, it's, it's not
1: going to work. So you're a forward thinking person. I know other young planners are forward thinking people how do you overcome this pushback that you get now i'm i'm from that other generation that started out you know several decades before you but i not only see it it's what i want and i would want it for the future of my not only my life my children's life any grandchildren's life whatever and how do you get city people County people, state people, and then, of course, federal people. I mean, you have a young transportation secretary right now, and he looks like he's bogged down in things that are keeping him away from this, even though I believe that it's where he started as the mayor of a small town in, I think it was Indiana, right? And all of a sudden he's worried about, well, are people being treated right on airplanes? You know, it's it's just the wrong conversation to me. I think it's a couple
2: of things. I think, you know, one, the cities have always had the vision, right? The cities have always had really grand visions. And you look at many of the cities that were destroyed um, for highways and for other things, it really very rarely is there an example of the city doing it. It was the state. It was, in some cases, the federal government. So if you think about how cities got to where they are today, they didn't do it to themselves. I think cities always have been the place of vision, the place of culture, um, the place of creativity. Um, And that's kind of the great things about cities What attracts young people to cities. But that being said, I think our state and our federal government has always kind of lacked vision and creativity. How do we get there? It's a long game. This isn't something that's going to snap overnight. Um, and, in, and in the book, um, I do talk about the call to action. It's really the wake-up call to the advocacy to the community of you spend so much energy fighting this one thing. You, you think about the bigger picture. And so some of that comes from one you know, punching strategically, there may be times where you have to accept the compromise on a project just to get it done so that you live to fight for the next one. But sometimes, you know, and I shared this in the book, it's like you you can get so bogged down in this one thing that it's like, whoa, come on, you got to, there's a bigger picture. Yeah. You get tunnel vision. The tunnel vision. Right. And, you know, we got to let better people, I mean, full stop, we got to get better people in office because it is bold leadership that enables even people like myself to be empowered to make hard decisions um, because I have an elected official that is supportive, and so we have to elect better leaders of our cities, of our states, um, and you know our, at our federal government, so we can move forward better policies. But if you think about you know we, as we talk about the secretary, he's bogged down. Because Congress is bogging him down. Why is Congress bogging them down? Because they want to be on CNN. Why do they want to be on CNN? That's how they get name recognition. How do you get name recognition? Why do you need name recognition? So you can win your next election. So they're, they're caught in this cycle. And so, at, you know, as you know, with the secretary, he is attempting to move forward and he's actually done a lot. I mean, I can tell you this bipartisan infrastructure law. It is historic the amounts of money that is going directly to cities, like you know, kind of bypassing the state or at least sidestepping uh, the state. But there has been historic amounts of monies that have gone to cities and you know the areas of persistent poverty, the areas that are always left out. I mean, the the the, you know billions have been invested, and so that is a huge uh, first step. And I've never seen anything like this in in
1: terms of the discretionary money that has been available. I I was just having this particular conversation with my husband yesterday, talking about all of the infrastructure construction that's going on literally all over Northeast Ohio. I mean, you can't go anywhere. Everything's sort of bogged down by that. But I know that's where that money is coming from. And I know that they wanted shovel ready projects, you know, for the most part. So I'm wondering how long this amazing amount of uh, investment is going to last to actually begin to diversify their thinking so that we can come up with some of the planning you want to see, I want to see, and other people like us want to see. I don't know. I, I think
2: um, it'll be interesting to see. I know that everyone's you know been like every year, it's like, oh, there's a recession coming. And you're like, OK, not here yet. The recession is coming. OK. Um, and and, and I don't know. It's still not I, here. And it's still not here. And I don't get into the economics of it all. But right now, um, the thing about infrastructure investment, it's the um, it is a kind of funneling of money. But think about all the people who work on infrastructure and all the money that they are spending as they are working on this infrastructure because they have steady jobs. And honestly, the thing I'm really more concerned about is. Do we, are we going to have a workforce that has the ability to help us deliver these projects? Because we're feeling it now. I was just at a conference and the speaker was talking about just within kind of this industry, this you know construction, transportation, you know, horizontal construction industry, just the gap that we have today and how it is just going to grow over time. And even if we completely just open the borders and let everyone in and funnel them into these jobs, it's still not gonna be enough people. And I think that to me is the thing that causes me more anxiety than the funding. Interesting. I know for for a lot of cities, that's what we're facing. It's a, we just, you can't get people.
1: Yeah, well, it's, uh, everybody's got signs out. They're trying to hire. Let's take another short break. And when we return, we'll speak with Veronica Davis some more. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm Diane Jenks. My guest, Veronica Davis, is a professional civil engineer in Houston, And we're talking about her new book, Inclusive Transportation, a manifesto for repairing divided communities. So I can remember when the auto plants shut down here in Northeast Ohio, there was a big Ford plant. There was a big, I think either, well, Chevy was GM, so a GM plant. And people said, well, what are those blue collar workers going to do? You know, and everybody talked about retraining, but the truth is that isn't what happened. They weren't retrained, they retired, they decided not to do whatever it is that might've furthered their education and their skills. And so I'm wondering if that is gonna be a problem now as the job picture changes, you know, what what people are actually needed to do. Um, Are we gonna lack because of the number of people or because of education and skills? It's
2: a lot. I think one, you have an aging, aging boomers. The boomers are, they're the, they are the largest group. Me. And yeah. And they're, they're leaving the workforce. And that is, that is hurting uh, a lot of people, particularly back in the day, you had those pension plans that, you know, you could join the city or join the federal government at, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old and retire at 50. You yes. still have a lot of life left. So you have a lot of that going on. So I think as they're exiting the workforce, uh, Gen X isn't enough to replace, there's not enough Gen Xers to replace the boomers. The millennials are on something different. You know, I think the millennials, you know, that that COVID changed their world and they're like, nope, I need work-life balance. I will work for you as long as I can go sit on a beach every now and then. Like, they are in a different place. And again, as I mentioned, the generation after them is even more different. And so, I don't even know. It's kind of the millennials are a wild card, (laughs) you know, as they grow up, especially the younger millennials, they're a little bit of a wild card of what they're going to do with the industry. But the reality is just a one for one replacement. We just don't have enough people. We don't have enough people today. And as the boomers leave, we're definitely not going to have enough people. But when I say, and it goes back to my kind of the earlier question you asked about with DEI. And I think that's where if, if it's going to be the survival of the fittest, and I think for companies, for cities that want to survive, they are going to have to be the work the employer of choice. And that means doing things I've seen, you know, some jobs where it's, you know, unlimited time off. You know, there are some jobs where it's all this flexibility and you get, you know, whatever it is, um, we'll buy you a bike. We, every, every two years, we'll buy you a brand new bike if you come and work for us. But you're going to have to be an employer of choice. And it's going to gonna have to be beyond salary, especially with the younger generation. Salary doesn't do it for them.
1: Right. It's not all about the money. So there are kind of four categories I'm looking at. There's that, the workforce. There's what's going on in Congress today, which is nothing. <laughs> we could start with nothing, but term limits would be the first thing I would suggest. Getting people like a Mitch McConnell who cannot keep his you know, mine together or a Diane Feinstein, I mean, we'll, we'll be equal opportunity bipartisan here. And then you have pushback, not only from people who live in communities. I don't want that bike route in my backyard, you know, which is uh, until you build it. And then th- there is a, there is usually a, uh, some sort of shift there. But you also have the auto industry, the oil industry, you have the construction industries who are saying, whoa, 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 you know, you're going to take away my life's blood. Now, the truth is, of course, now we're looking at electric vehicles, but what's that going to do to our electrical grid? What's Mm -hmm. it going to do? How many charging stations are there really? Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm not sure where this is all going. And it's terrifying in a way.
2: I think it's terrifying because you have industries that are um, holding on to what was, and they're not looking to what they could be. So you do have some automakers that are saying, okay, let's look to the future. And so they are investing in autonomous vehicles and, and the shuttles and, and all types of, you know, different you know iterations of, of ways to move, Maybe not a bus full of people, maybe 10 people, you know, eight people at a time, you know, and they are putting that investment. I'll give credit to some of them. They are putting that investment in into what the future could be. I think even with some of the energy companies, um, they are the smart ones are making the pivot to say, okay, this ain't this ain't going to last forever. Um, This may have been our bread and butter but how do we survive for the future? And so you have major oil and gas companies that are making big investment in renewable energy. Um, So I think that some of them get it, not from a altruistic perspective, but from a bottom line, we have to continue to survive. What's our pivot? Um, So I think you see some there. Um, I was joking on um, a a different uh, conversation about you know, I was like, my sleeper pick for the war on cars is the, you know, the, the insurance companies, because um, I think that's another big piece of, you know, you know, there's a couple companies now that won't insure parts of California. They've pulled out, you know, completely because of the repetitive loss, the repetitive damage. And as you think about the transportation side and auto insurance, it goes up, it goes up. And eventually some auto insurance companies are going to say, you know what, we ran the cost benefit of this city. You're not doing what you need to do and you are costing us money because think about auto insurance. The goal is I collect your premium and Diane, you go be a great driver and I'm going to collect your premium every year and I'm going to take the, the, the premium that you give me that $1,000, $2,000 a year and I'm going to go invest it and I'm going to earn 10%, 20% off of your, your $1,000 and I'm good and that's how life should be. But, oh, now you got into a crash or now this thing happened and I got to pay. I don't really want to pay. Right. They don't want to pay. Of course not. That's the goal. And I think that at some point, you know, they're going to wake up and say, wait a minute, we ran the numbers on your city. And if you don't fix this infrastructure, we're not going to insure this city. You're costing us money. Every time we turn around, we got to write another check. This is you costing us money. It's not it's, it's the good and bad of capitalism. Right. Capitalism is we exist to make
1: money. You were, not making, you were causing me to lose money. Really interesting perspective. All right. The last thing I want to talk about is climate change. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see a lot about it in your book, but we have communities who are going to, there are going to be communities that just flat out disappear. They're going to mm-hmm. be underwater or whatever. But I'm wondering how transportation can play into a positive role for climate change not just getting cars off the road but there are other things I think that transportation can do one I know we were we happened to be in um, Amish country yesterday and all these young people and all these even adults were riding e-bikes mm-hmm. and it was so interesting you know we might see one or two in the city we saw dozens That was Mm -hmm. their transportation. So what, what, uh, and to me, that's a climate plus. I think this, I think, um, so we do know
2: that the transportation industry is one of the, you know, largest polluters of things that impact the climate. Science says, not me, the science. But I do think that when you think, and that's just thinking about the actual vehicles themselves. But when you look at transportation as a whole, Old and the amount of resources it takes, um, it's a lot because no one ever thinks, we always think about the motor vehicle. No one thinks about, okay, so if I have cars up and down the street, now I got to do a mill and overlay. So that is energy and, and, and ripping up asphalt and putting down new asphalt, right? Um, and, and all of those impacts. And I am of the belief, this is my thing of, look, I could take on a lot of things. I can engineer a lot of things. One thing i'm not going to engineer is god universe mother nature whatever you want to call it we're not gonna that's not a battle i can win and you know i was joking there was um a road here um where i live that you know we did a mill in overland it's like falling apart and in my mind i'm like why is this road here to begin with like why like why are we why did we ever build this road to begin with and why am i having to redo this um and it's those are the types of questions we have to ask ourselves. Is should we do that, right? You look at communities that have had repetitive losses, and guess what we do? We just build right back. Right. There's a road in it. Um, Florida, perfect example. Perfect example. But then I think it goes back to if you can have a bold vision of what if we got rid of half of our pavement, you know, what does that transportation network begin to look like? Then it's like, well, no, transportation becomes a solution. It becomes a tool. Um, to make things better. When you look at climate change and you look at, you know, most roads, there's no trees, you know, there's no greenery to help cool the street down, you know, when it's a hundred something, it's been a hundred something degrees in Houston, you know, there's no trees, there's none of that. And so I think that there is a space that we can do more.
1: Last thing I want to talk about is uh, the book itself, your book and how it's a manifesto, which means people can read it and take some action on their own. Mm-hmm. What kinds of things, and I ask a lot of people this question, what can we do as individuals? Um, advocacy we know is one, but there are other things. What What kinds of things are you suggesting to make transportation more inclusive and it's not just about diversity and equity and inclusion?
2: Yeah, you know, one of the reasons, I'd say the biggest thing that I hope um, people can do at an individual level is have an understanding of self and understanding of others. I start off the book in chapter one with transportation is personal. And I share my story and I invite the reader to really investigate their story. It's something that think about the public. They do this thing every day. They take this route every day and they don't really complain until something goes wrong. But they're not necessarily conscious of why do you make this decision? Why do you specifically choose this route and not a different route? And I think it's just inviting the reader of how did you grow up? How did you move? Why do you why do you live in the city you live in today? Why did you choose your neighborhood? Like all of those things, just investigating those things, just to understand that everything is a conscious decision. Um, and then ending, you know, I do talk about, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, but that to me is not an out. Um, I really say, you know, we have to build up our empathy as professionals. And that looks like taking the time to invest in people and resources where you are decentered. And that can be, it doesn't have to be a big performative thing. You know, some people can read think pieces, God bless you, read your think pieces. I'm not talking about that. You know, for me, I like sci-fi books. And so I try to find sci-fi where the main character is someone who is different from me. And I've read one where a main character had a sibling that was trans, a transgender woman, and so it's dystopia, and you hear the concerns around their sister's safety. You know, it's those type of things, and it's again just gives you insight. It gives you thought and things that you don't think about, like oh, hmm, I didn't think about if there was end of the world that someone might be concerned about how their gender identity. So it's just to do that, or I follow um, a bunch of people from disability Twitter. And it's amazing, there was a funny story, there was one last night where a, a, a congressman of somewhere um, posted a picture, and so it's a person who is being lifted out of a wheelchair, and there it's a man, and they're twerking on him. And so someone's, this is like, imagine you twerking on this disabled person. And so disabled Twitter was like, what's wrong with that? We wanna see twerking too, right? And next time, just, you know, hold them up a little bit different. And again, it's this reminder that like, hey, people have other needs. They want to see twerking. Like, it's okay. Um, and so just taking the
1: time to really decenter yourself. What a great perspective. I really like it. I think we tend to gloss over a lot of these things and forget that we're individuals and that we we can have a say. I think a lot of think we can't make a difference, that we really exactly. cannot. And, and I think we can. We've been speaking with Veronica Davis. She is an, a civil engineer. Uh, she's an urban planner. Her book, Inclusive Transportation, a Manifesto for Repairing Divided Communities, is out now. And where can my listeners get a copy of it and learn more about you and your work? You're in uh, Texas, as I remember. I'm in
2: Texas. So my personal website is veronicao.com. But they can get my book from islandpress.org, Barnes and Nobles. If you want to pay for Bezos to go back to the moon, amazon.com.
1: If you want to support nonprofits, bookstore.org. And there you go. Veronica, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I've learned a lot and I love that. And I really enjoy your book. By the way, it has a beautifully designed cover. Everybody knows I like the way things look. So thank you so much. Keep doing great work. And I hope we get to talk again. Thank you so much for having me. My thanks to Veronica Davis for joining me on the show. As many of you know, I am always interested in seeing more equitable opportunities for biking and walking and really appreciate Veronica's perspective. Her book, Inclusive Transportation, A Manifesto for Repairing Divided Communities, is available from Island Press. It's also at your favorite indie bookstore or from the usual online sellers. You can learn more about Veronica on her website, veronicao.com. Let's take a short break. And when we return, we'll speak with master's champion, Eric McBride. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. are back on the Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. Bruce Springsteen sings about being born to run, and apparently U.S. Masters champion Eric McBride was born to ride. Racking up two golds and a silver at the 2023 Pan Am Games on the track, Eric takes every opportunity to race his bicycles, yes plural bicycles, in track, road, and crit disciplines. His accomplishments this year being what they are, he's already looking forward to 2024 to see what he and his new squad, Kingdom Racing, will do. Hello, Eric. Welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me on the show today. How are you?
3: I'm well, Diane. Thanks for having me.
1: It's my pleasure. You've done some pretty cool things recently, and I want to talk about it. But before we do that, give us a little bit of background about you how you got into competitive cycling and the work you're doing.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, in college, I ran competitively and um, was an academic all-American at Slippery Rock, which is division two school in cross country. You know, as many runners have happened to them, I ended up getting injured a couple of times and finding my way to the bicycle while I was in college, I ended up spending some time racing on the mountain bike team there and um, making some friends in the cycling community. After undergrad, I went to graduate school and started competing in triathlons, and it didn't take long for me to see that kind of my strength was definitely in endurance events and cycling specifically. So I competed in uh, triathlons professionally for a couple of years, uh, won the bronze medal at the world championships in 2000, and then took a few years off to focus on career and raising the kids. After that, I came back with my son and he started to get in you know, into cycling, specifically mountain biking again. And from there, just been uh, racing ever since.
1: Wait a minute. You don't even look old enough to have children, let alone to have gotten that medal back in 2000. That was 23 years ago. Like, really?
3: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: So the group you work for, this Palm Beach Health Network Physicians Group, are you a doctor?
3: No, I'm an administrator. So my degrees are in I have a master's in business administration and a master's in health services administration. But I I, I manage the medical groups. So I'm the CEO for the Palm Beach Health Medical Group. It's a division of tenant health. And you know we have 13 markets around the country and I'm just really proud of the work we're doing here in Palm Beach.
1: Let's talk a little bit about these uh, recent racing experiences and results, outstanding results, actually. And I'm interested because you race in multiple disciplines. So I know that you know, when you talk to a road racer, he or she's a road racer. When you talk to a track cyclist, yeah, that's the specialty, but you're doing more than that. So tell us a little bit about your specialties, uh, plural, and then about the, the things that have happened this year.
3: Yeah. I mean, I really enjoy all facets of cycling. I think I've raced every kind of bike out there except for BMX bikes. And frankly, uh, I, I would say it's not off the table right now. I've got a teammate that is just getting into it this year. So uh, you never know where the world's gonna take us. But for me, kind of focused in on the road cycling scene and uh, found an affinity for, for track cycling. When I was in Detroit, I picked up uh, the track cycling scene there because they built the Lexus Velodrome. It's one of the only few indoor tracks in the country. And it really kind of gave a good option to winter training outside in Michigan for sure. So that's where I kind of learned the skill set, and from there I've just been able to maintain it. In Florida here, I only live about 45 minutes to an hour away from another track at the Brian Piccolo Park, so I have opportunities to keep my skill set up and, and train with other people in that space. But definitely get out there and um, you know, like throw down on the track, and then also in the road criteriums, uh, road races. You know, there's a gravel race this weekend I'm doing, so you know, whatever it is, if it's got two wheels and pedals, then uh, I'm pretty much in.
1: That's pretty cool. Let me take a moment to reintroduce you. We're speaking with Eric McBride, who is a multi-discipline cyclist and multi-winner. So you competed in the Pan Am Masters Championships this year, where you represented the U.S. in track at Worlds. Tell us about what happened at the Pan Am Masters Championships. And those are, those are represented worldwide. That's not just the U.S.
3: Yeah. The Pan-American is really, you know, about the whole basically Western hemisphere. It's kind of how it's defined. So we're racing everybody, you know, all the way down South America, all the way up in Canada. Uh, for us this year, the event for masters was held in Santo Domingo, uh, Dominican Republic, you know, from Miami, actually just two hour flight. So pretty convenient. Got on a, got on a plane, ended up there and you know, spent the week uh, racing in multiple disciplines. So the first events that were up were, were track. Uh, unfortunately, I had um, contracted COVID about 10 days before yeah, the event. So uh, it was pretty brutal. Ended up, um, you know, pretty sick on that. And second time having it, unfortunately. So that wasn't ideal, but I got some rest, that's for sure. So I came in with kind of fresh legs and um, on the track. Things just kind of played to my advantage. The scratch race, which is basically... First across the line wins and it was um, a shorter race, 10 kilometers. So it wasn't too stressful. I ended up having the best legs and, um, you know, taking, taking that victory for the the championship. A couple of days later, they had the points race and the way the points race works on the track is that, uh, you race for 30 kilometers and over 30 kilometers, there's basically six sprint points that happen like every five laps and you get points for five, three, two, and one for first second third and fourth if you lap the field you get 20 points and then on the last sprint it's double points so a little bit complicated kind of fun got to keep track of the math look at your competition and figure out kind of where you're at that race was super exciting because basically with one sprint to go myself and another competitor were completely tied on points which is pretty rare yeah so the crowd was definitely on edge because um, this was a local Santa Domingo and uh, pretty popular gentleman as well. So um, with basically two laps to go, I ended up uh, jumping the group and sprinting ahead and had a good gap and was able to hold off the field for uh, a good victory in the points race as well. So I ended up winning both the points and the scratch races at the Pan Am games. Wow. That was, that was fun. Uh, two days later, we raced the the road race. That was, I mean, we're looking at, you know, 70. Uh, well, the circuit race was actually 70 kilometers. And then the, the road race was 107 kilometers. That race was particularly challenged because I didn't have any teammates. And like the Dominicans had about 25. So they stuck it to me pretty good. And I can tell you that, in almost a, like a three hour race, I was in the pack for about three minutes is what my Garmin showed. So off the front chasing breaks, being aggressive, ended up finishing uh, for the silver medal in that race, uh, which I was pretty proud of given the competition level and um, kind of how I was feeling coming off COVID. Uh, the next, the next day I was a little bit wiped out from all the events and still recovering and we had the circuit race. So I did finish fifth there and I, um, and it was the first American in that race as well.
1: So I have some questions about your bikes, plural. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh well, being the bike geek, do you race the same bike for road and crit?
3: Um, it kind of depends uh on the course, actually. So uh Diane, sadly, I've got a detachment disorder and I have about 14 or 15 bikes right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know that the right number of bikes is what you have plus one and plus yeah. one. So yeah, no, I get it. I've been in the bike business a long time.
3: <laughs> right. All right.
1: So what's your, fa- I, well, we'll ask you about your favorite bike later. I want to hear what you rode for Pan Am.
3: I ended up taking um, a specialized Venge. Uh, so it's kind of one of my classics. It's good because um, it's a, it's pretty light. So it do, does well on, on the climbs. And I knew that one of the race courses there on the road was specifically hilly and um I would definitely play a, you know an advantage there because it's an arrow and you know a good climbing light bike. So I do have that. Uh, I've got a more modern bike now that um, I race on a lot around here in Miami and it's uh, a, a canyon. So I just got that painted with the Pan Am motif and uh pretty excited about being able to race that in 2024.
1: And what about your track bike?
3: Yeah, I got a new track bike this year, too, just kind of uh, getting ready for the the big events that were going on with the Pan Am Games in the world. So I got a Delon out of uh, England and raced on that. I previously had a bike that, you know, it's it's great. I'm winning on a bike that was gifted to me from a friend that kind of got out of the sport. And it was it's kind of fun to take, you know, someone else's bike that they liked and uh, did well on and, you know, continue to, to use it and race it
1: let me once again reintroduce you. (laughs) We're speaking with Eric McBride, owner of several, okay, lots of bikes and a gold, silver. I'm sure you have other medals too, but in the Pan Am Games for 2023 and represented the U.S. in track and the worlds. Tell us a little bit about the worlds, where they were held and and, uh, who you were up against. That's a whole different sort of can of worms.
3: Yeah, you know, taking things to the next level. So you know, obviously excited with my performance, the Pan Am Games and kind of transitioning over to Worlds. They were in Manchester, England this year. So about a month after the Pan Am Games. Uh, so I flew over there. My daughter actually is in Paris right now studying for a year. So I spent a week with her visiting and then just took a plane over from Paris to Manchester for a week long of racing on the track. The event there, I mean, they put on class a world-class events, to be honest. I mean, the venue was phenomenal. Uh, the support was great. Uh, well-organized. It was, you know, pretty special event. So, you know, for that, you know, 35 countries and hundreds and hundreds of athletes were there racing over, you know, the week long activities. You know, I still specialized in the, you know, what's quote unquote endurance races. So the scratch and the points races and, uh, You know, we got into things pretty early, I think, um, in the scratch race, you know, just trying to figure out which gear to ride based on the competition and talking with folks, given it was my first track world championships, just people kept saying it's going to be fast, uh, keep gearing up. So I moved up about three or four more inches in length on the gearing. And I think that definitely played a role in uh, being able to be competitive in that event. We, I mean, amazingly rode. Our race, you know, was 45 to 49 year olds. We averaged over 31 miles an hour for the race, so I mean, it was basically full gas the whole time, and that's riding the blue line, which is obviously not the bottom of the track where things are measured. Probably about you know 20 percent of the time. So some people go up and then attack from the blue line or briefly recover. It was uh, it, it was great to see to be in competition with people of similar or even better skill set and, and fitness so I really enjoyed you know stacking myself up against that competition so in the scratch race I ended up finishing ninth uh, so not too bad but definitely wanted to try to get a podium or even a world title a couple of days later we raced in the, the points race again I described that format same exact format for the Pan Am games as it was for worlds and uh pretty early on I saw there were a few guys that were really good Sprinters and uh they were definitely trying to take take points on the sprint laps. Uh, One guy was a returning world championship from the previous uh, year's event and was looking good. So, you know, I just tried to get what I could in in the points. I ended up finishing that race in sixth overall. You know, pretty pleased with uh, the outcome there. and Definitely had a lot of fun racing at the, the world level.
1: Who sanctions these Masters races at Worlds?
3: Yeah, all these ones are, you know, are UCI. Uh, they are. Sanctioned, yeah. So just like you see for the, all the World Tour racers.
1: So did they do testing?
3: Yeah, they did testing, actually. So I was pretty excited about that. Me too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, there's a, a lot of crazy things going on in the sport, especially, you know, sadly, even at the Masters level. But um, anyone who breaks a world or national record gets automatic testing. So that that's kind of a given, which is good. Uh, the rest of it's random from there. You know, I saw a lot of people getting tested at Worlds.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Because, you know, you read about some of these masters, writers who are are doing this crazy stuff and you're thinking, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You're like 49, 50, 60 years old. And, you know, you got to come in for that competitive, you know, drive seems to make people do crazy things. But I'm glad to hear that they test at Worlds. That's great.
3: Yeah, it's a real challenge down here in Miami. I think Is it? Last, time, last time I looked, uh, you know, USADA puts out the number of people that are, you know, suspended or sanctioned and, right. you know, in in the master space, I think Florida accounted for more people being sanctioned for doping than all the other states combined.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's like Florida's really famous for killing people with their, with their cars too, who ride bikes. Okay.
3: Yeah, it's we got some, we have some challenges here. Yeah. There's a couple of cultural things. I think that in some of the, the subsets of the population that, um, it's accepted, but you know, the good thing is I hold myself and my teammates at the highest standard. And, you know, uh, if you can win a bike race in Miami, you can win a bike race anywhere in the world. I mean, it is crazy competitive down here. So I just take it as a chance to race guys that, you know, you know, may or may not be following all the rules and, um, it is what it is.
1: Yeah. Who are your teammates?
3: Well, I got a new squad for 2024, actually. I just uh, signed with them last week, so uh, pretty excited about making that announcement. It went out on social media this week, but uh, we're going to be racing uh, Kingdom Racing out of uh, Orlando. Good group of guys that are um, focused on three main areas. One would be um, last year they had a domestic elite women's team, which is basically one level down from – You know some of the domestic racing teams that are competing in the world you know tour events and then um, they added a men's domestic elite team and i'm going to be really excited to race again with um, some one of my teammates from michigan actually is going to come down and relocate and race with that squad and then they've had a master's team for a little while that i'll be joining so that's kind of the three areas where they're you know, focused in on for racing for 2024.
1: So that's what I want to talk about last. And that is your future plans. 2024 is coming up. The Pan Am games are not held every year. Worlds are held every year. But so what's happening in 2024 for you and your team?
3: Yeah, for us, you know, we're really excited to put our domestic elite team up against pretty much anybody. So we're going to be sending them to all the national events that are out there. And I plan to go and support as well. This year, nationals were moved up a bit because it's Olympic year, so they're uh, racing in the springtime, actually, which is a big advantage for us here in Florida because, you know, our full-on race season starts January 7th. I just got the notice today, Uh, so we'll be, you know, racing every weekend um, all the way through till basically October. It's, you know, a lot of racing.
1: Yeah. So mm. how can people find out more about the kingdom racing, um, team and about you and sort of follow what's going on in masters? Because I think most of my listeners are masters yeah, yeah. Of, of masters age.
3: <laughs> right. Right. I Always tell people if they're local that come out and, you know, see a race, that's the best sure. way to, you know, get connected on things and really get, um, a feel for, for the racing. So if that opportunity presents, then, you know, take advantage of it, but otherwise, uh, I've got a, you know, small YouTube channel uh that's my name and on instagram it's just eric.mcbride1 the number one uh for folks that want to follow me on on that scene and then uh the kingdomracing.com so that's our that's our new team and we're really excited about getting this group together and seeing what we can do in 2024.
1: Well, I, I have to say you are very ambitious when it comes to bike racing, and it's a pleasure to be able to talk with you and hear about all these cool things. Uh, we've been speaking with Eric McBride. He is a gold medalist from the Pan Am Games uh, in Santa Santa Domingo this year, in the right. yeah in the Dominican Republic, and uh, making the U.S. proud. And from the world's doing really, 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 really well. Thanks so much for talking with me. Have a great 2024 season and um, we'll check in again.
3: Thanks, Diane. Have a great day. Thanks for having me on the show. You too. Take care.
1: My thanks to Eric McBride for joining me on the show. You can learn more about Eric on his YouTube channel, eric.mcbride1, and follow his team at kingdomracing.com. My thanks to you for tuning in, and next time on The Outspoken Cyclist, we'll be speaking with Tracy and Peter Fluky about their most recent tandem trip. Their new book, Bicycling Route 66, is just out, and the format is so much fun. You can find out more about our guests along with links, photos, and a transcript of the podcast at OutspokenCyclist.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook And soon you'll be able to tune in to our YouTube channel. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app so you never miss an episode. I hope you have a great day. Stay safe. Stay well. And remember, there is always time for a ride. (music) Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We welcome your thoughts and contributions on our Facebook page. Or visit OutspokenCyclist.com to leave a comment on any episode. We will be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news in the world of cycling. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.